Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 241. Moving along wow. here. Moving along. We got heck of shows under our belts. I'm really excited. I'm here, as always, with Dr. Liza Dunn. My name is Cameron English. We're going to talk about some science. Liza, what's going on? How are you? Not much. I'm on the road. I'm moving my husband to St. Louis. So we're, we're uh, taking a little break on our road trip, and then we're going to head out tomorrow or tonight, I guess, tonight. That's pretty badass. You're like, yeah, we're moving like halfway across the country, but I got to stop and do my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So let's jump in here. Three stories as always. First up, precision probiotics. Can this anti-hangover drink help you metabolize alcohol quicker? Next up, unregulated $14 billion surrogacy industry treats women like child factories. And finally, in the name of equity, Democrats try to limit drug patent rights. Here's why that could derail U.S. bioinnovation and hurt the most vulnerable people. Okay, so I am, uh, I'm going to rely on you, Liza, for this story because there's a lot of toxicology in here, a lot of, lot of biology, and, and it's really cool, so I don't want to get it wrong. But here's the basic idea. There's this company. They're called Z-Biotics. They're based uh, in San Francisco, just down the road from me here in California, and they have engineered this um, – I, you know, for lack of a better term, a GMO uh, bacteria, and you take yep. it, you take it as a little shot, like like a little five hour energy kind of thing. You take one of those before you start drinking, and then provided you don't go absolutely insane with too much alcohol, um, it prevents some of the nastiest side effects uh, of a hangover. And the the key ingredient ingredient is a genetically engineered bacteria that uh, interferes with, uh, or I guess not interferes is the wrong way to put it, but enhances the, me- the metabolization of alcohol uh, or metabolism of alcohol. Um, and I, I spoke to the owner of this company. His name is Zach Abbott. He's a really cool dude, microbiologist. Um, back in 2020, when they were just getting this off the ground. And since then, uh, it's really taken off. And the science of it is all cool. We'll get into that. But I think the key here is that it works and that the company suspects that this is going to have a positive impact on how the public understands biotechnology. So we'll get into all that in a second. Liza, just explain reasonably simply, if you can, what's going on at the, you know, at the cellular level or uh, at at the microbial level rather. So there are a couple of things to think about. So alcohol, when you break it down in your body, you drink it, it starts out as alcohol. It gets broken down by an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase to a toxic metabolite called acetaldehyde. And acetaldehyde has been associated with the development of cancers um, and it, it causes cellular damage and a whole variety of things. But acetaldehyde is also broken down very quickly by acetaldehyde aldehyde dehydrogenase, right, to acetate, which is like vinegar. So that's those are the simple steps. Now, some people can't break down acetaldehyde very well. Their enzyme is different. And so you have it floating around for a little bit longer. And people sometimes get what they call a disulfiram flush. They turn red. They have stomach aches. They don't feel good. So a lot that tends to be a polymorphism that you see in the Asian population. So they don't t- tolerate alcohol very well. But people who don't break it down very quick, but have an accumulation of it can also have cellular damage. And so the thought is, according to these guys, is that this gut acetaldehyde may play a role in hangover. Um, And 
the, the traditional thinking about hangover is that people get dehydrated. And their claim is that dehydration is not what is underlying hangover. It's maybe this acetaldehyde, extra gut acetaldehyde. And so what they've done is they've genetically engineered a bacterium to withstand the uh, the acid in the stomach and get into the gut and actually can help metabolize, makes an enzyme that helps metabolize this intermediate metabolite um, and decrease the hangover symptoms. Now, um, I think it's very, very interesting science. I think it's very, very interesting um, genetic modification. Uh, the question is, does it really actually help hangover? And as opposed to, is it um, a placebo effect. And I haven't seen a randomized double-blind study to see if it improves, if, if there's a comparison between outcomes of placebo and this particular uh, engineered uh, bacterium. So I think I think there's a lot of, I have a lot of interest in the gut microbiome because I think it's fascinating. You could really do some interesting things, but I'm, I'm not sure I've seen enough data to suggest that it actually works other than the company saying that it works. Now, I'm also not sure that hangover would be my initial thing to think about because since acetaldehyde is mutagenic and can cause it, it is associated with cancer and alcohol consumption is associated with uh, exposure uh, like uh, 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 GI cancers. Mm. If you, I wonder if, you could see a significant decrease in GI cancers with this. So I think that that to me is a much more interesting potential study and outcome rather than, oh, somebody's hang hungover. And I, they're, they're claiming that, you know, people, that hangovers aren't related to dehydration. Well, we actually know that it, they are. There are, a couple, there are a couple things about hangover. So the first thing about hangover is that when you have ethanol consumption, you inhibit the release of antidiuretic hormone. And so antidiuretic hormone keeps fluid in your body, water in your body. And when it's inhibited, you, you urinate more. And so people can urinate up to a liter, um, you know, after they've had consum heavy consumption of alcohol. So we do know that you can have dehydration with that. Um, the second thing is that often um, people think that, that it's not acetaldehyde that's causing um, hangover, but it's it's maybe cogeners um, in in alcohol. So what are cogeners? And so you tend to get people having hangovers with more kind of red wines or whiskeys or things like that. And cogeners are the the um, things that soak out of the barrel and they're they're uh, chemistry chemicals that give uh, these other kinds of alcohols their flavor. So people tend not to get quite as bad of a hangover with vodka or or gin because they don't have that those extra additives that come mm. with aging and things like that. So there's there's a lot of thought that hangover has to do with cogeners. There's a lot of thought that hangover has to do with um, uh, dehydration. This is an interesting um, you know way of potentially preventing hangover. Um, I'd like to see a double blind controlled studies to suggest that it's better than placebo because we talked about that last week. Right. Um, but I also think that this technology could be really, really interesting in maybe preventing cancer. So I, I hope I explained that well. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not certain cause I, I didn't ask him about this, but I'm, I'm almost certain that that has occurred to them at some point in the development that, Hey, wait a minute, this, this could, you know, but they're not going to make an anti-cancer claim. No, not with, yet, yeah. Yeah. Without like, without doing, I don't know, however many hundreds of millions of dollars of research yeah. it's going to take. Um, I, I do know that they, they went through the ringer in terms of demonstrating safety. So they did get a, a generally recognized a safe uh, registration or certification from the FDA. And then they did publish a study in uh, the journal of toxicology. I want to say, Oh, okay. Yeah. They went to a major journal and they said, you know, vet this for us. And they put the paper on bioarchive first so everyone could see it. So I don't, I don't think there's any safety concerns, but I think that's an interesting, interesting point you bring up is that, uh, and, and he stresses that in the story because he's, he's saying, you know, how do you know this works? And he explains the mechanism like, like you just did, but then he says, you know, people continue to buy this. And the feedback we're getting is that it makes a difference. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I I don't know if we can put that down to the placebo effect or not, but um, it's it's something to consider. Um, the the other aspect of this that I wanted to talk about, and this is something that that Zach Abbott has has pointed out in multiple uh, occasions, as well as when I interviewed him, is he said we recognize this as sort of a sort of like an end run around people's concerns about genetic engineering. Because yeah. it's a practical benefit or a practical yep. solution to a real problem, you know. So everyone, especially when you're younger, um, you know the effects of binge drinking because you wake up the next day and you go, what in the hell did someone just hit me with a two by four? You know, so right. if, you, if you can alleviate that, and again, what whether it's a, a genuine effect or, you know, people have just convinced themselves, whatever, you know, if that's, this benefit occurs, then you know, not only are they going to say, well, I guess I'm not bothered by genetic engineering. They're probably not even going to think about that. That's right. right. The same way you would, same way you would with the medicine. So, so talk, talk about that. What do you think about that as a strategy of, you know, enlightening people about uh, biotechnology? I think one, so I think um, one of the things that for biotechnology, we recognize how it benefits the farmer, right. And how it benefits, um, it benefits diabetics too, because, you know, um, GMO insulin is, is produced at human insulin is a GM produced by genetically modified E. coli bacteria. And so I guess, but, um, people in everyday life don't necessarily see the benefits of GMO technology and biotech. And so I think that this is a really good application that people could see that the, the practical Im- impact that it has um, in everyday life and it and make it more personal for them. So that they, it's not something that's so foreign to, uh, you know, their existence. So I, I do think it, it's a good way of introducing the technology to, to people who might find some benefit from it. Yeah, the other, uh, I guess this is clever too, but you know, this whole field, as we've talked about multiple times, this, uh, you know, the supplement industry or, you know, a, a boost your gut health or wh- like whatever, whatever kind of wooey marketing claim they're turning to, they're turning the GMO label into, uh, a plus by saying, you know, all this other crap doesn't work, right. All of these like multivitamins and, and energy boosters and what, what, like whatever's supposed to stop your hangover. It's all BS, but our thing's real because we've got this, this super sexy technology inside, you know? So I think that's really cool too, is you take something that a lot of companies treat as a negative that they need to downplay or that they need to apologize for. And they go, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. This, this is killer, right? This is, yes, this is you know, cool I th- yeah. yeah. 
this is cool technology. And it brings it to a demographic that you wouldn't necessarily ordinarily um, think about this stuff, right? It, it mm-hmm. heightens it in, in a, group, a younger group of people. It's it's exciting. Uh, I, I'm just curious to see what happens because I, I, you know, the Me like too. the way they've presented it, I think is cool, and I think they've been upfront about everything. They're not overselling it. I I don't think at least you know. Um, yeah. So so I I appreciate that. You know, a lot of companies they just they bullshit their way through their marketing, and it's annoying. And no, okay. yeah, I think this is I think this is neat, and I think it's got potential. Um, I think you know, I'd love to see how it works out. Yeah, I'd like to try it. I just don't drink enough anymore to to just <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I have a couple of white claws. I'm like, I'm done. That's all I can. That's, um, yeah, that's such a such a lightweight now in my 30s. Okay, so let's move on. This next story is uh, this is heavy stuff. Just uh, just an advance warning for for folks. I'm just going to read the opening paragraph of this because it punched me right in the stomach when I read it, and I think it sums up what we're talking about. And then and then I'll let uh, Dr. Liza jump in and explain this. So this is Erica Anderson writing for Newsweek, and she's talking about surrogacy. And if you don't know what that is, that's just it's effectively women renting their bodies out to people who can't have children or they don't want to, like they don't want to have their own biological children. And it's a massive industry. So just just as as a premise, be aware of that. So she writes, in the last two years, surrogacy has gone from a $4 billion to a $14 billion industry. This is a business that profits off eggs and wombs poached from impoverished women in the U.S. and uh, war-torn places like Ukraine, where clinics have been described as child factories or children factories, excuse me. And babies were stuck in limbo for months without parents during a war. So just, it just, and maybe this, this is my new dad brain kicking, but that's just mind boggling to me. So, I mean, that's the essence of it. This it's, it seems at least hypothetically, like this is a very impressive way to get around infertility. Perhaps there's all sorts of downsides and this seems to go sideways really, really quickly. So what's your take on this? Yeah, I think that I can totally empathize with people who are having fertility problems. One of my very, very best friends um, wound up having, um, having very, very difficult time having a baby. And she had, a, a, she actually had a baby that had a fetal anomaly. And uh, so she had all sorts of emotions around this kind of stuff. So I, I understand that people who have fertility issues are really, really wanting to have a, a baby in some capacity. And so I can understand the motivation. Mm-hmm. And this, this practice has been described as addressing that. Now, the problem is that he, there are a lot of different things to take into account um, and want ethical concerns. And I think that there is, this is sort of the wild west of fertility treatment. There, there's not, there not a lot of regulations around it and things like that. So um, if you've got women who are impoverished, who are offering their bodies in, up for more wealthy women not to have to go through the pregnancy, that's kind of questionable to me because pregnancy is a high-risk affair just in general. Um, people die. Um, people have complications. They get pre- preeclampsia and things like that. So if you have, if let's say you have a baby that's born prematurely um, with issues and that, that, that uh, you know, brain issues, intensive care, and that adoptive family or the family that was supposed to be the surrogate decides, oh, no, that's an impaired baby. We don't want it. What happens to that baby? What happens to that impoverished woman? There's a case in Thailand where an Australian couple uh, hired a Thai woman as a surrogate. 
and um, they used um, they used embryos that they implanted in her womb, and uh, one of the babies turned out to have Down syndrome. And so, rather than taking both babies, they left the impoverished Thai woman with the Down syndrome baby. And so, here she is now with a child that she wasn't expecting to have that's got um, developmental needs and is probably quite expensive, right? So there are all sorts, and, and it did that case actually changed Thai law um, about surrogacy. And so there are very strict rules in um, France and Germany about, in, in a lot of Western European countries, about um, surrogacy in general because of the ethical questions that are out there. Um, and I think that they are that these need, we need to actually have a much better framework um, about this rather than just sort of going willy nilly into it. And when it comes to compensating somebody for uh, surrogacy, that actually uh, has all sorts of um, connotations too. If you're doing it out of altruism, that may be one thing, but compensating people actually adds a whole uh, element of you know. Um, a dis social disparity and it, i think that uh, it's it's fraud yeah I, I reserve the right to change my mind on this but but at this at this juncture as i'm just starting to learn about this this just sounds absurd to me this this, this is just no yeah. way there's just no way that that this is justifiable and and i'm 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 sure I know the arguments already, right? That there's there's people that need this and they really want to be parents. And, you know, this is an opportunity for people that understand what they're getting, blah, 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 blah. I, I know I'm like, like, I know the, the libertarian case people are going to make for this, but the, like, the other thing, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. The other thing that is that that's very concerning to me is who's vetting these parents, right? These are the, the, the adoptive or whichever parents. Adoption has so many rules and regulations put around it that you have to have it go through a really incredible vet, vetting process before a child can be placed. Whereas that the same thing is the same sort of guardrails are not put around surrogacy. So, so what are the people who are adopting these kids? What are their motivations what are their intentions are they are they um going to be adequate parents and stuff like that there are they're just so many uh so many considerations to take into account um health and welfare of mother health and welfare of the child um whether or not the adoptive parents or the, the surrogate the, the parents that are going to take this child in are uh, are adequately vetted um, in financial uh, things. I think it's, I just think it's a really problematic thing. And, and I do still empathize with people who have problems with fertility. I understand that that's a really tough thing. Yeah. I, I think though, and again, I, who knows for certain, but there are other ways to address infertility, mm -hmm. right? There are other treatments. There are other ways to get at this without this, you know, I, I mean, there yeah. was a, a few weeks ago, I don't know if we talked about it or if I just wrote about it, but there are, there are women who are transitioning. They want to be men, but they're pregnant. And so yeah. they, they are going on testosterone during their pregnancy. And the doctors are like, um, may, maybe don't do that. Right. Cause there's some really serious risks and, and the, the way endocrine disruptor, <laughs> right, right, right. So, so the way the issue is framed in other words is, you know, but, but this is my lived this is my life and you know i'm really torn between you know taking care of my you know growing baby or like living my best life and i like i think of that and i go that is absurd 
The, the, like the fact that we're having this discussion is absurd. And I think the same thing here. And, and let me, let me tell you why. So she, she talks about the health risks to the, to the surrogate mothers, mm-hmm. but, but then to the baby. So she writes yep. surrogate mothers who become pregnant with eggs from another woman are also at higher risk for preeclampsia yep. and high blood pressure. Their babies risk low birth weight, prematurity, and other health issues. Some women have even died while giving birth as surrogates. Yes. So, 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 and again, I want to turn this over to you again, but, but the problem here seems to be as long as there's consent and as long as I want to do this, that seems to be the determining factor here. And I think that as we're illustrating here, right, there's more involved biologically between the baby and the mother. And she also talks about that, right? Like the child has a connection to uh, his or her biological mother. And if you, if you strip them of that or you divorce them, you know, for, for some goofy contractual reason, because whatever, you know, like you don't want to experience childbirth or, you know, it's a right. gay couple and they can't have a child. This just seems nuts to me. You know what I mean? Like, like we're equating things or we're giving things equal value that are not of equal value. Right. Your thoughts? And especially because, you know, there's all, all this discussion about how risky pregnancy is in everyday life, right? Mother's life at risk. So pregnancy is a risky affair. Preeclampsia is life-threatening um, and can cause the birth of, once again, of premature babies, you know, a whole variety of outcomes. I, I, I think this is really fraught, and I think it reflects, um, I, I think it reflects this, this sentiment in society that uh, everything is about me and what I want rather than um, what is the best outcome for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's an, you know, I think that that's, can, that can be unfortunate. Um, once again, I understand uh, how people, I'm well aware of how people feel when they have infertility issues and it's really, really hard, but I, I'm not sure that this is the right way to go about it because I think that, that people, there, there's undue risk put on third parties and that undue risk is often uh, driven by financial need. Um, and I think that that's a, I, I think that that's problematic. She gives some, a few other anecdotes. Um, and, and again, I don't want to be swayed by an individual story, but I think there's some interesting issues here that need to be addressed. So she tells the story of one woman who uh, developed breast cancer while she was, uh-huh. she was being a surrogate and the, it was, I think it was a gay couple, two two gay men, and they said, "Well, we want you to abort the pregnancy because we're afraid of what's going to happen." And and I apparently she was resistant. She's like, "I'm not going to do that, right?" So, in in that case, how do you figure out? How does a judge adjudicate, or how does a you know a government or whomever, like an ethics committee, whoever's going to make this decision? It's like, you know, because I hear over and over again, you know, women have control over their bodies. This is about autonomy and liberty and, you know, right. All of a sudden everyone's Patrick Henry when it comes to to reproduction. But then on the other side, you have this other couple who also has a lot of social status, I suppose, and they have their own civil rights cause in in recent years. Like how how do you, without being arbitrary and just saying, well, I kind of feel that these people have the claim here, you know, like the kid doesn't get to vote in any of this. I just, I don't, I don't know. It, yeah. it seems like. And then also, if you think about what happens afterwards, if the baby's born, right. And, and the, then they have their, they trace a 23 and me, they trace back to, to whoever the mm-hmm. biologic parent is, um, you know, that, that has its own issues as well. 
right? It's, it's so they're, they're just it's just fraught all around, all the way around in terms of bonding for the child, um, yeah. you know, health health issues for the mother and the child, um, you know, and then and then just the idea of what what's are human beings property. Right. Are they commodities or are human beings what what's what's the essence of humanity? And I think these are really tough, um, important questions that we should be thinking about instead of. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's fraught. Crazy stuff. I, I want to recommend a book. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, it's called The Abolition of Man. It's it, He wrote it in the 1940s, but it's incredible. It's very prescient because th- he talks about these kind of issues. And sort of the sort of the philosophical assumptions that you start with to justify this in your own mind. Um, and, and it's really good. You know, he makes a compelling argument about why I think you could just go, we're not going to do this. You know what I mean? Like, like, and I, I, I think it's, I think it's, really, yeah, I think it's problematic. It yeah. Is problematic. Yeah. Check out that book. And then there's other people, there's lots of ethicists who I'm sure will, will challenge what we're saying here. I just, yeah. this is just insane to me. I I, I don't think, on balance, you can say that this is a good idea. This is a good idea. Yeah, I think I think it has. Yeah, I think it's got too much potential for. Yeah. Okay. Fraud. It's fraud. Um, C.S. Lewis taught my grand, by the way. Well, see, that's cool. I want that story. <laughs> <laughs> I just get to yeah. read his books. That's not the. Yeah. Anyways, um, okay. Yeah, I, I want I want to revisit that. There's all these interesting biotechnologies coming online. You know, growing embryos in 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 the lab. A brave new world. Brave New World, yeah. Oh, just stop, everyone. Just stop. Okay, okay. We'll put that aside. Final story of the day. This is called, In the Name of Equity, Democrats Try to Limit Drug Patent Rights. Here's why that could derail U.S. bioinnovation and hurt the most vulnerable. This is by uh, Frank Watanabe. Watanabe? I don't know. He's writing in The Hill, and uh, he he is in the industry, full disclosure, so he has a vested stake in this. doesn't make him wrong. I just want to make sure everyone understands where, where he's coming from. So he he points out, that right now the U.S. is the world leader in terms of biotechnology innovation. He says we produce about two thirds of new drugs. Um, a lot of the technology is developed here. The companies are here, right? So we are the powerhouse for the time being. But he says that could change very quickly because we're starting to adopt the kind of regulatory framework that Europe has, where there's much more government involvement. There's more restrictions on what these companies can do, how they can collaborate. Um, it's more costly as a result of that because you have this whole apparatus sort of governing what happens. And he says this is what knocked Europe out of the leadership spot in the 1970s is they were they were out innovating us, I suppose you could say. And then they put these handcuffs on themselves and we took over. And he says there, there's a risk. It's not going to be Europe this time. He says it's probably going to be China if we don't get our act together. Um, yeah. And I think it's probably an argument most people are familiar with, but the basic idea is, you know, some company develops a a technology, it costs them, you know, an absurd amount, like a million or a billion dollars and 10 years of of research and development. And then in order to recoup that, they need the rights to sell that technology for, I think it's 20 years or something, right? So they have this set period where only they get to sell it. And we are eating into that very thin profit profit margin uh in the name of you know what well, everyone gets you know medicine's a human right everyone has access to this and and that's what's starting starting to happen and he gives the example of the covid vaccines that and i believe i mean there were so many doses given away and i think i yeah. i think it was pfizer that said we're just we're just gonna 
right? We're taking the reins off this. We don't own it anymore. Have at it. So, but but he's saying when that becomes the de facto or when that becomes the policy, when governments say, thank you for developing this, uh, we're in charge now. He says, you're going to kill innovation. You're going to destroy all the incentives that that uh, push people to develop products that that keep us healthier, save our lives, fix fix our issues. And that's bad news bears for everyone. So uh, jump in here. Yeah, I think that, that that's true. And I, I think that the, I think that where that motivation comes from is often well intended. You want to provide the best solutions to the most people with a, with a medical problem or things like that. But if you give away your IP and you don't make any money from it, um, you then don't have the wherewithal to reinvest in your company and make more. Um, and if it's, it becomes too prohibitively expensive for smaller startup companies to do this work and protect their patents, right, then they are out of business. And the only people that actually are in business are the big time companies that mm-hmm. can afford to do all this stuff. So um, you, you naturally move away from small businesses because they aren't going to be able to compete, even though they have very, very innovative ideas. Mm-hmm. That is small businesses can, if, if they, if they're able to focus, they, they're nimble. They're able to focus on this one thing, right? Whereas big companies are sort of big, they've got all sorts of products that they're working on and things like that. So you lose some of the, the nimbleness when you, uh, when you don't have a lot of small companies able to do these things and they have the right to practice, uh, to, to patent what they develop. And then they can out license those. They can, they can, you know, invest in other technologies and, and it grows from there. But um, if you, if you take those rights away from them um, in the name of helping you know, more and more people, you actually wind up in the long run helping less people because you're not innovating anymore. Um, It's incredibly expensive um, and it's incredibly hard work and very smart people spend a lot of time and and energy um, developing these things on their own. So I think that uh, they have a right to, you know, make money off of what they've what they've produced and making money is not a bad thing it actually helps them innovate more and mm-hmm. the people sort of forget that part of the equation yeah it's pretty common sense i've said before the profit motive is why you get up and go to work you know so you can pay your bills and so you can you know go to the bar on friday night and you know buy christmas gifts it's it's okay it's okay to make money it's okay to like to have things you know you don't have to you're not a selfless automaton you don't function that way and it's bad for people around you if you live that way, because that's exactly right. Yeah, and we've we've seen this over and over and over again. Once when when things get collectivized, you lose the motivation to be productive. You you're just gonna. And this is having lived in Poland uh, right after the fall of the Berlin Wall and seeing what the aftermath of the collective government government controlling everything yeah. is not is is it really leaves societies behind and so i think that this is an example of you know government wanting to sort of be involved to a degree that it actually winds up harming innovation and people then won't have a motivation to do things there's a there's an economist uh, named ludwig von mises and he wrote a lot about this I, start with the book bureaucracy if you want to get into this but he points out that you have a functioning market somewhere and then the government gets involved and they say, we want to lower prices, right? We want everyone to have access to affordable milk or whatever. So then they put a price, they put in um, 
a price ceiling. They say you can't charge more than two bucks for a gallon of milk. And then that's great. Everyone has access to milk and they buy it up and they buy it up. And then you inevitably get shortages because there's no profit in producing milk anymore. So then there's milk shortages. So then the government comes back in and they go, go produce more milk. You know, we'll subsidize the production of milk, right? So on the one hand, they're putting a price ceiling, which kills the incentive. And then they're taking more money and they're giving it to farmers to produce more milk, right? And over time, this requires ever increasing amounts of intervention to make things function. And it's because the idiots in control don't understand these basic incentives. So applied to this this situation, I think one of the problems could be it is so costly to develop a new drug and there's so much involved um, that doesn't have anything to do with demonstrating the safety and the efficacy of it. There's, you know what I mean? Like, like if you want to look into the process that the FDA requires to get a new drug approved or the EPA requires to get a new pesticide approved, it's a it's absurd right years and uh, at least a billion dollars right off the top. right so the, so the simple point for now is is you could streamline that process and you could significantly significantly cut the cost and if you could do that then maybe you wouldn't need patent protection or maybe you would need less of it so the companies could still be profitable or who whoever develops the drug right they can still be profitable and then you don't have to lock it up for two decades or whatever that's right. Uh, you know, so in other words, it, it, in, in every stage, you're trying to fix a problem that that you created previously, right? So you put these regulations in place. It's too expensive to develop the drug. So then you give patent control to this one company. But then other politicians get pissed off at that because they say, well, there's poor kids in India that need vaccines. So we're going to take away your patent protection. So, so you know what I mean? So it's like you are you are poking holes in the process at every stage. So just stop That's doing right. that. You know, let, let's try that approach. No one ever talks about that. What do you think? And, and well, what I say is that what you described there is in a microcosm, it, it has happened to the American healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Every step of the way, everybody talks about, oh, we, you know, socialized medicine is the way to go. Okay, so every government intervention since 1996 has made healthcare more expensive and less accessible to people across the country. And now it is the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States of America, and over 75% of people who go bankrupt because of medical bills are insured. So it is not an insurance problem. It is not a, it is not a, um, a, a uh, doctors charge too much money problem. It is the fact that there are now layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy between the patient and the doctor. And every one of those from from capping the number of residencies to, to the high tech act where everybody had to buy uh, computers to have electronic medical records that are really actually billing things has has gone to make medicine absolutely unaffordable for the uh, majority of people. That, in a nutshell, is what happens when you do this at every step. So, like, so for developing pharmaceuticals, you have all sorts of regulations around that. That makes it expensive. If you can cut that, and I'm not saying cut safety, I'm saying cut unnecessary re- regulation um, mm-hmm. and protect it. Um, then maybe it'll be more affordable for people. But people like the idea that that the government's going to take care of them rather than their neighbor, <laughs> right? And I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that works well. Yeah, it's it's hard, and we'll wrap up here soon. But it's hard for people to see because there's all these moving parts, but they're not mm-hmm. visible, you know. And and uh, Henry Hazlitt talks about that in economics in one lesson. He talks about the, it's it's the unseen. Or yep. and then he goes and talks about the broken window fallacy, 
Um, and just read the book. It's free online. I don't want to get too deep into it, but there's just all of these moving parts. And so if you're the average consumer and you look at this, and you go, you know, people shouldn't be going bankrupt because they need cancer treatment or, you know, like why is health insurance $2,500 a month for, you know, right. for a new family? That's absurd. And so you yeah. see that and you go, well, the obvious answer is we're just going to force insurers to offer plans that people can afford. Right. But you don't think about what that requires what basically what it requires is other people have to buy health care they don't need to subsidize yep. other insurance plans it's like so don't don't do that right yes you, you that's know, exactly. I, anyways i don't want to get off topic but yeah so so in other words i think he's he's identified a real problem um and he makes a valid point you know that if you develop something and it's all your labor and all your ingenuity and all of your investment on the front end then i think you have a right to profit off of it but it seems like there's a lot of possible solutions and people just don't like. They don't like this. That's exactly right. Right. That's exactly right. And that's unfortunate. Uh, And it can be, they can be politicized. Right. And that's, that's, therein lies the problem. People never hear the reason why it's important to be profitable. The reason why it's important to be profitable is so you can continue to make what you're, what you're doing. Right. If you can't be profitable, you can't make it. Yeah. Yeah, bread does not just fall out of the sky. Neither do big screen TVs or cell phones or, you know, like so pe- right. people have to make those for us. <laughs> right. I, I'm grateful they do and I'm happy to pay, pay for them. So um, there you go. All right, we'll stop talking. This is, uh, we could keep keep going, no doubt, but uh, everyone's got a week to get to. So thank you as always for joining us. Uh, we'll be back next week for 242. In the meantime, follow us on social media. It's at Dr. Liza MD. I am Cam J English. The Genetic Literacy Project is at Genetic Literacy. Give them a follow. Uh, read their content because they put the show on for us. And uh, I need to keep asking this. Rate the show on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify. Yeah. Write reviews. Really helps us. Share it with your friends. Uh, we thank you. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Have a good week.